You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are in John chapter 19, beginning in, in verse 38. And again, we're just going to preach this twice. I'm going to tell you guys what's happening on earth and what's happening not on the surface of the earth. We'll start with the easy stuff, what's happening on earth. We're going to be introduced this morning to a couple of guys. Uh, Nicodemus will be reintroduced to, if you've been with Mercy's Door, and a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we're going to see their involvement in the burial ceremony of Jesus. We're going to see Pilate again. We're going to see some centurions. We're going to see a bunch of characters. And we're going to learn just a bunch about the, the events of the, of the day and why we were doing them. I'm going to overlap a little bit with what Chaplain Howard preached last week in order to give some continuity to what's happening here. But I kind of want you guys to see it. So, so last week, we, we, when we were preaching the crucifixion account, what we saw was, was Jesus voluntarily laying down his life. He'd been beaten, mocked, scorned, scourged, purple robe, clothed in mockery, crown of thorns pressed into his head. He bore his own cross and carried it to the place of the skull, a place called Golgotha. And there his, he was pierced through with his nails, through his wrists, and through his ankles to the cross. And the cross was hoisted up, he between two other common criminals. One of them would place their faith in Christ in his final hour. The other one would die apart from God. And Jesus, as he's looking out at his onlookers, prays for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do before finally in his last moment declaring, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. And then we read some additional accounts at the death of Christ that uh, there's this clamor to hurry up and get these bodies off the cross and get them buried. And there may be some confusion if you're not familiar with the Jewish law or with the Jewish burial customs, why there was this clamor. But we are provided some details in this passage that this year the Passover fell on the Sabbath, at the day of preparation. It was the day of preparation. And the Jewish day began at 6 p.m. And Jesus was still alive at 3 p.m. And so we're talking about a three-hour turnaround to get these bodies off the cross before the Sabbath. And why this mattered is because God gave a command to the Jews in the book of Leviticus, and it reads like this. or in the book of Deuteronomy, rather, 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the Jews were operating under this law, that when a criminal is hanged for his crimes, God commands not to leave that body hanging overnight, lest it defile the land that they inherited. And concerned about the Passover and concerned about the day of rest, the Sabbath, where we're to do no work, we've got to get these bodies off the cross. And we've got to do it before 6 o'clock. And so there's this urgency among some of the people to get on with it, in order that they can get back to obeying God. And you can obviously see the irony there. 
let's hurry up and finish this crucifixion of God so we can get back to obeying God. But I'm not going to harp on that because I've been preaching that for weeks. Instead, I want to hold out to you Galatians 3.13. This is an interpretation that Paul gave of this law in Deuteronomy. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what we saw last week was Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. The Son of God cursed by God, taking the curse of sin upon himself and taking it with him into today's events, into the tomb, into the grave. And so this morning, we're not just talking about a criminal's death. We are talking about the death of death and the death of Christ. We are talking about the death of the penalty of sin. We are talking about the death of the wrath of God, which kindled against sinners because it was poured out and satisfied in Christ Jesus on that cursed tree. Amen? And so they pull him down. And it goes like this. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So just a little bit about who Joseph of Arimathea was, who Nicodemus was, and who Pilate is in this interaction. I want you to know that the other gospel accounts tell us, Mark specifically tells us, that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Jesus died a quick death on the cross. In some cases, it could go on for days. And so, in order to confirm that Jesus was really dead before he permitted them to take, down, to take him off the cross, he commanded a centurion to confirm that Jesus was dead first. And Mark tells us that after he heard the report from the centurion that he was, in fact, dead, he permitted him to be taken down. In last week's account, you, we read that the centurions, when the, you'll remember what the, what the Jews asked was, can you go ahead and break their legs in order that we can pull them down? The idea there is that when you're hoisted up on a cross, you're trying by your own strength to keep yourself alive through struggle, using the strength of your legs to try to keep your body. And ultimately what's happening is you're asphyxiating and you're suffocating and your legs are helping to delay that process. So if we break your legs, I can speed up your death. But when they got to Jesus' cross, they saw that he was already dead. And so rather than breaking his legs, it says that one of the centurions pierced him through the side with a spear. Now you need to see that because from our, you got to see the perspective correctly. Jesus is lifted up and the centurion is down here. And so to pierce him through his side, you've got to go kind of up and under the rib cage. And that's where we read that immediately he spilled blood and water. Biologically, we have to imagine that what happened is that he had pierced the pericardium, the sack of water around the heart, so that it gushed out 
blood, and water. And I, I pointed out to you to say that the gospel has given us everything we need to know to answer the question, did he really die? And I don't know if any of you have wrestled with some of the ancient heresies about the death of Jesus, but I need you to hear it. The gospel accounts make it very clear. Jesus was dead, dead. He was all the way dead. He wasn't swooned. He didn't faint. He wasn't carried off, passed out to the tomb to wake up later. Jesus was dead. And upon confirming the testimony of a Roman centurion that Jesus was in fact dead, Pilate granted that the criminals be removed, Jesus to be taken away to a tomb, probably the others to be thrown into a common criminal's grave. And so then we learn about Joseph of Arimathea. If we take all of the gospel accounts together, what Matthew tells us is that the tomb that they're going to lay Jesus in is Joseph's tomb. He, it, no body had ever been laid in it before. We read, in fact, he is the one who had it cut himself. It says that after the burial, it was Joseph who actually physically rolled the stone into the cleft of the rock, into the channel, in order to seal the tomb. We'll talk a little bit more about their burial customs. Mark tells us that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was looking uh, forward to the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man who had not agreed with the actions of the Sanhedrin. And so knowing these things about Joseph, he starts to sound a good bit about uh, like our friend Nicodemus. If you haven't been with Mercy's Door, I'm going to catch you up. But if you have, you've met Nicodemus twice now in this gospel account. You met him in John 3, and you met him again in John 7. I want to reread for you guys real quickly John chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, the first time that we meet Nicodemus. It's relevant for our passage today. Nicodemus seeks out Jesus to have a conversation with him. It says, that, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can, a man be <clears throat> how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, then he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Listen close. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Nicodemus gets one of the longest and best interactions with Jesus, I think, in his earthly ministry. He seeks him out, and he asks him a question, and he gets the fullness of an answer from Jesus, doesn't he? Nicodemus, the law alone is not enough. You must be born again. How can I be born again? You must be born of the flesh and of the spirit, of the water and the spirit. I don't understand. Well, when the Son of Man is lifted up by this mechanism, will people be invited into this eternal life, this new life, this new birth that I've described to you? And he's the one who is given this, this image of like the, like the staff was raised by Moses, the serpent was raised by Moses, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. I say this to you to say that when this man saw that man lifted up on a cross, he had more context for what was happening than maybe anyone. Jesus told him this must happen. And you've got to imagine that when Nicodemus sees this, he's thinking, he said, unless this happens, but if this happens, then you could have eternal life. You could be born of the Spirit. And we see something happen in Nicodemus, don't we? There's a change. The change didn't start in this moment. It started after the interaction with Jesus. We see him a second time in John chapter 7. This is a shorter account. But the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, had sent a band of officers to try to arrest Jesus during a previous Passover. And the account goes like this. The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one has ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? It's this crowd that does not know the law that is accursed. And, you know, we got Nicodemus over here, one of the Pharisees, secretly thinking, I have. And he tries to give a defense, doesn't he? He says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they strike him down. They reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so we've got to see through these three different passages dispersed from chapter 3, from chapter 7, and now here in chapter 19, the development of the discipleship of Nicodemus. He was one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Jerusalem. And so the two members of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling court that condemned Jesus to death, are the ones who attend to his burial. I want you to see the great, how remarkable that is that members of the court that condemned him were some of the first to come and worship him at his death. It means that nobody is beyond reach, and we're going to get there in a second, but first I want to give you the simple details. And so we read that um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus attend to his burial, um, it, they, that Nicodemus came bearing a gift of mixture, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And then they wrapped him in the linen cloth with the spices. And I was reading up on this in order to try to get some sense for whether or not that was a lot, and it turns out that's a lot. 
75 pounds of myrrh and aloe is worth roughly $200,000 in modern money. It was two times what Josephus, the Jewish historian, recorded was used to bury Gamaliel, who was a respected leader in this day, four times what was used on a common burial. And so he received a king's burial. And that should tell us a good bit about the heart posture of Nicodemus and Joseph at this burial. And this was, of course, to fulfill Isaiah 53, Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so he's buried. He's in the tomb. Luke tells us that Joseph himself seals it over. But the Jews were not happy. They were concerned, and so they go to Pilate and they say, Listen, he was teaching in his life that he was going to raise after three days. So can you like, guard the tomb just in case his disciples get any ideas about coming and stealing the body over the next three days? Just three days. And Pilate obliges. He says, you've got a band of soldiers. Go, secure it as best as you can. And so a band of soldiers goes and guards the tomb, and it says that they seal the tomb. And this means uh, not like they sealed it with like tar or something like that, that they sealed it with the Roman seal, probably a rope across the tomb bearing the seal of the emperor. And it would have been easy enough to cut it open, but the idea of a Roman seal is you don't break it. If you break the seal of the emperor, it's instant death for you. And so with the full weight of the Roman Empire behind them, they guard this tomb. This, this will not be opened. And I've never seen that kind of effort put into guarding a dead guy before, let alone a band of fishermen disciples from Galilee. There had to have been some sense, especially given the events that they saw at the cross, that something was going to happen. And something was happening, church. We'll get to Easter next week. But right now, it goes quiet, doesn't it? it seems like he lost. He's dead, dead, carried to a tomb, covered by a stone in order to keep the stench inside. Decay has started. The way that Jewish tombs worked is for about a year, you, the body would lay in the tomb cut from the rock not embalmed for preservation, but covered in spices and herbs to control the smell. And after about a year, it would have decomposed to bones. And then the bones would be removed and given a more permanent burial. And so a body would only remain in the stone tomb for about a year, and, it was, and they had a prolonged mourning period for the dead. And this has all been done. The reason I need to point this out to you is to say, some have said that there was a whole plot and ploy around faking a resurrection. You've probably heard them. Everyone trying to come up with ways to explain how this dead man came back to life. But what I want to hold out to you is every last one recorded that went to go visit the tomb went there to visit a dead man. They didn't go there expecting resurrection. They went there bearing the things that you bring to a funeral. 
They went there to say goodbye. They went there to do what you do for the dead. And that's what they've done. They've given him a king's burial. And then it goes quiet. And now we shift our attention to what was happening in the silence. It's remarkable what happened on earth, but to the eyes, all I've seen so far now is the death of the so-called Messiah. What now? And my hope is that by looking at what Jesus was doing in these days in the tomb, that we will come to rejoice that our God does some of his best work in the dark. That when God is most silent, sometimes he is doing his absolute grandest work. And this account is evidence of that. So where did Jesus go? What was Jesus doing? Many of us have not thought deeply about death. Many of us have not thought deeply about where we go when we die, let alone stop to consider, has it always been the way it is now? Has it changed? Did the death of Jesus, did the atoning blood of Jesus change what happens when we die? I want to answer that for us today. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said of himself, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the heart of the earth. Now, of this place, the heart of the earth, he turned to the other thief on the cross, and he called this place paradise to him. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want you guys to track with me, because where Jesus is going today is not to the right hand of the Father. That happens after the ascension. And we know this because he confirms it when he returns. When he appears to his mother in John 20, in about a chapter, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And so if after the resurrection he appears to Mary and says, I have not been, I have not ascended to see my father, but he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, where was he? And that's what I want to answer for you guys this morning. And in that, I want to bring us to a passage in Luke where Jesus gives us some insight into this place with a story. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. I'll send you out these scripture references after the sermon. Let me just read it to you. It's a story that Jesus tells. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in, in like manner bad things. 
but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so Jesus gives us this image of the place where Abraham is, Abraham being long dead. And he says that this man who recently died goes to be where Abraham is. And in this place, Jesus describes a great chasm between them within eyesight of those who are in the place that he called Hades, a place of torment, a place where he thirsts. He says, none pass from one to the other, but of this place in which he descended, he says to the thief, I will be with you in paradise. Paradise means place of peace. Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom is the same term that is used for those who drew near to Jesus at table when he reclined with them on earth, that they drew near to Jesus' side or to Jesus' bosom, that there's a seat of honor where you are seated in peace beside your fa the father of the faith, Abraham, in this place that the Jews called Sheol, that the Greeks called Hades. And Jesus says that this place is really two. There is the place of torment, and there's the place of peace. And then Jesus descends to this place. We read about his descension several times in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10 says that when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. We'll get to that. And he gave gifts to men, meaning the Holy Spirit and, and the accompanying gifts. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. First Peter 3, Peter likewise says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. All of this put together tells us that the way that the Lord ordained things prior to the atoning blood of Christ was that those who died in the faith, looking forward to the promised Messiah, but having not yet received the payment of their sin by the blood of Christ, were held in a place of peace in Sheol. Abraham's bosom was a word he used in a word picture. And that this place was not heaven, but it was peaceful. But they were captive there. Why? Because he had to go and proclaim to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. We take this doctrine ultimately for me 
from Romans chapter 3, and then I'll try to be done with my cross-referencing all over the place today. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul wrote this. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, what this means is that those who were under the law before Christ came, they received the testimony of a alien righteousness to be had in Christ Jesus. The law and the prophets told of it in the days of old. They bore witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe before Christ, while Christ was on the earth, and after Christ. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, listen close, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so what Paul is teaching us, you put all these doctrines together, and you see it's always been by faith that we were saved. Even when we were under the law as our keeper, it was by faith that Abraham was saved. It was by faith that Moses was saved. And that faith is what kept them at peace with God while they awaited the atoning blood of Christ to be applied to their disobediences in order that they would be justified before him the same way that we are, by faith. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that the scriptures are not messing around when they say that Jesus descended and led a host of captives with him when he ascended. That it's not joking when it says that Jesus descended and that he preached to those who were in captivity because of their former disobedience. That Jesus descended into the nether places of the earth and he gathered the church, those who died in faith prior to his atoning blood being applied, and he took them with him to heaven when he ascended, such that today that place is empty. And now when you die, church, you go directly into the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for eternity in heaven. Not a place of waiting. Not a place of peace. Heaven. Heaven. And that's not all. Then comes the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus Christ returns for the final judgment, both those who die apart from him, I want to make this clear, if today, church, you die apart from Christ, you will be cast into the nether places of the earth, that place of torment, that place is not empty. And those people will await their final judgment. And at the final judgment, all will receive resurrected bodies. The unjust will be raised from the dead into their, into their bodies, will be resurrected. They will be joined with their spirit, and they will receive the final judgment of God. And then they will be cast into the lake of fire to make eternal punishment for their sins because they will pay and pay and pay, but they are not Christ, and so they are insufficient to make a complete payment for their own sin. Likewise, you who have been in the presence of God, in spirit but not in body, will receive the resurrection from the dead. Your spirit will be joined with a glorified body and you will receive final judgment. 
and you will hear declared over you, well done, my good and faithful servant, as the righteousness of Christ is spoken over you, and you are justified before God, and then you will be invited into what is called the new earth, where heaven and earth will come together, and you will dwell bodily for eternally with your God. If you're like, come to GC. Let's talk it out. The reason why we have to wrestle with matters of what happens when we die is because a wrong idea about what happens when we die will give us a wrong idea about what happens in this life and what determines what happens when we die. Some of you call yourselves Christians, and, and I'm not saying you're not, and yet you have no theology whatsoever about what happens when we die, except that in some general sense, I'm going to be with God. I'll tell you that a major obstacle in my own faith as I was, as I was coming into being a disciple of Christ and trying to study his word is I just wasn't all that excited about heaven. I'm like, God, I don't want to go to hell, but I also don't want to be a baby flying around shooting arrows at, you know, people. I just had no concept of what heaven was. And so you just make stuff up. I bet I can fly in heaven. You know, I... Like, I just see a bunch of cupids flying around, right? Like, whatever. Church, what you long for, even more than heaven, in the general sense that we mean it, is the new earth. That's the promise that Christ made to you. That there is a place that God is preparing for you where heaven and earth are brought together and you get to reign bodily in the kingdom of God, in the presence of God that you can stand before his glory and not melt, but instead receive it as the very light of day, the very warmth on your skin. You were made to dwell bodily. God did not make a mistake when he made humanity. What he has promised is to restore you to what you were made for, to enjoy him and worship him and glorify him forever. But that also means that to die separated from him is to one day hear a judgment spoken over you that you will pay bodily, eternally, for your sin. And none of us knows if we have tomorrow. None of us knows if we'll make it home. And it is by faith alone in Christ alone, beholding him lifted up in declaring the Son of God made payment for my sin, that we can be justified before God, and we will hear one day, well done. I could preach on this, a whole sermon series, and I know that I've given you a lot. What I want to see is Mercy's Door become a church that desperately longs for heaven that so has a right view of what happens after we die, that we could say like Paul, that to, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. To so believe and understand what is coming for us, what is promised to us, the inheritance that is coming for us, that we march onward through pain and suffering in this life with our eyes fixed on the prize because we know that our God is good and faithful. Likewise, if you are in this church and you do not belong to Christ, I want you to be so uncomfortable here. 
I want you to hear what the Scripture says is for you if you go before your, your Creator God in the merits of your own righteousness. It will not stand up against His holy judgment. Repent today. Receive Christ for your salvation today. If you don't know what that means, come and talk to me. Stay up all night. Let's get it right today. And if you're in him, let's live like it. This life is not all there is. We've got good things coming for us. And so maybe a good way to spend it would be like the same thing I've been preaching every single week at Mercy's Door, which is kind of what Paul was saying where when Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous in order that the hope of salvation might come to the Gentiles, he opened mercy's door. But it won't always be open. You know where you're going. Why not tell a friend? You won't bring anything with you into eternity except maybe someone else by sharing the gospel, which is the power of salvation for those who will believe. So let's pray for them.